hey, Edgewater. Um, my name is Justin, and I'm the children's pastor here. I have a four-year-old daughter. I've got a two-year-old son. I've got a third on the way. So my house has had a whole lot of Disney being played in it this week. And there's one movie in particular that's become my favorite that we've been watching a whole lot, and it's called Wreck-It Ralph. And what happens in this movie, it's very similar to Toy Story, where at the end of the day, when all the people are gone, the toys kind of come alive and they have their own little adventure. Wreck-It Ralph takes place in, our, in an arcade, where there's all these different arcade games, which are all their own different worlds. And when the arcade is closed and people are gone, all those little characters, they come alive and they visit each other's worlds through the subway system, which is the surge protector And so they go and they travel to each other's worlds. They have fun. And there's one world in particular that the majority of the story takes place. And it's a perfect world. It's a world that was designed where everything in it is good. Everything in it tastes sweet. Everything is perfect. And that there's a person in it whose name is Vanellope. And she's got a function to promote the well-being of everyone else in this world. And she has a really good purpose that she serves there. But one day... Something really bad happens. And from a different world, something really evil comes in. And it affects Vanellope. It changes her code. It makes it so that she can't operate the way that she's supposed to in her world. She can't operate the way she's supposed to with other characters. She's got a glitch. Whenever she tries to perform her function, there's a glitch in her system now. And she can't do things the way she used to. She can't do things the way that she would like to. And now she's outcast. She doesn't fit in anywhere. She doesn't fit in her own world. She doesn't fit in her own place. She doesn't fit in her own social circle. She just doesn't work anymore. And that evil thing that came in, it burrows, it burrows deep under the surface of her world. And it just starts eating everything and destroying everything and multiplying where no one can see it. And then from another world comes this guy named Ralph, who the story is named after. And Ralph comes and he meets Vanellope. He gets to know her, and despite her glitch, he comes to love her. And then one day at the end of the story, it all culminates when this evil thing starts to break free, and it starts to eat and to destroy and consume everything it can get its hands on. It's just absolutely tearing this world apart, and Ralph tries to evacuate all of the characters, to get them to leave, to get them to go to safety, because to stay is certain death. And as he's leading people away from death to life, Vanellope is stopped by an invisible barrier. She can't cross over because her game has got this antivirus software to protect other games. And because of her code, because the way she's glitched, she looks like a virus and she can't pass through. And so Ralph has this predicament where he's got this friend that he loves who's trapped by an invisible barrier on the other side. And death is coming to get her. And Ralph has every ability, has every chance to say, well, bummer. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry you've got this glitch in your system, but that's not my problem. Good luck to you and leave. But Ralph, he loves Vanellope so much that he decides to save her, he'd even give up his own life. And what he does is he leaves safety where he knows his world, where he's got comfort, where he, everything's good, and instead he goes to fight the ultimate bad guy of this world so that his friend can live. And as I'm watching the story with my kids, I'm just like, 
oh my gosh, this is like, this is the gospel. I'm watching these stories and there's not just this one, but a ton of Disney stories and a ton of great movies not by Disney use themes that are exclusively in the Bible. I think because as humans, universally, something in our souls say, yeah, that's right. That's what happened. That's what happened for me. Because you and I know that the Bible tells us that God created a perfect world where everything in it was good. Everything was good to eat, that humans and everything that was created interacted together perfectly. But then something happened, and you can look around the world now today and ask yourself, is it good? Well, not really, because now there are things that aren't good, like there's death, and there's disease, and there's hardship, and there's poverty, and there's pain. And so you go, man, it's not good anymore. And then you and I, we, we're, we have this function. We have a way that God created for us to do super well. We were to do two things. One of them is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's one thing. And the other thing is that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we become really aware, acutely aware of this messed up part of our soul, this glitch, you could call it, whenever we can't love our neighbor as ourselves, whenever we can't be kind to others, or as Philippians would put it, whenever we can't view others as more significant than ourselves. And we become acutely aware of this glitch whenever instead of worshiping God and striving to be nearer to God, instead we worship celebrities and fame and sex and comfort and food and finances. Whenever we look at status and say, that is what I want, that's what I'm going to strive my life to be, to get close to. Whenever we worship anything other than God, and whenever we can't love our neighbor as ourselves, I think our glitch, our brokenness, what the Bible would call sin, makes itself very well known. But what the Bible tells us is that from another world came someone who was perfect. And that person so loved the world, even in our brokenness, even with the messed up part of us that, can't, that, that we can't fix on our own, that stops us from getting to life, that keeps us in a land of death, despite that, this person from another world would give even his own life to save you and I. And we know that that work is finished on the cross in Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, that's awesome. I tuned into Bible study, and instead, I got an exposition on a Disney movie, right on. But there's a point for it. There's a reason. There's something, and when we watch these movies, our soul goes, wow, that's what happened for me. That's my story. And when we look at Exodus chapter 14, where we're at tonight, you can't let it be just another cool story. You can't let it be just a really interesting written thing that happened. Instead, when you look at Exodus chapter 14, you and I are supposed to look at it going, that's what Jesus did for me. There's no other Old Testament story that so aggressively wants you and I to look at it through the lens of Jesus. It's mentioned throughout the Old Testament. It's been alluded to in numerous times in the Old Testament, but the New Testament says you have to look at this story to get an understanding of what your salvation looks like. I mean, in, Ma in Matthew chapter 2, what Matthew says is, out of my son, out of, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Speaking of Jesus. But we know that's quoting Hosea chapter 11, where God called the Israelites out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. 
You have Luke chapter 9, where Jesus, he meets with Moses and with Elijah, and they talk to Jesus about his departure. And if you have footnotes in your Bible in Luke chapter 9, you'll see that word departure is a Greek word that just literally means exodus. That Elijah and Moses met up with Jesus to talk about his exodus that would be completed in Jerusalem on the cross. You have Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 that say when we look at Moses, we need to know that he points us to a greater Moses whose name is Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that the Israelites were able to cross the Red Sea by faith and the Egyptians couldn't because they didn't have faith. We're supposed to look at this story in Exodus chapter 14 as a model for how the Christian faith is walked out. And then the last one I'll share with you, because there's so many, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 through 6. Paul says that the Israelites, when they crossed through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. And then Paul writes a few other Old Testament references. But in verse 6, he finishes by saying, that these things were written down as examples for you and for me, that we're to look at these stories and say, this is what Jesus did for me. When we look at this story, it's not just a cool story, but this is the most physical representation of what salvation is for you and for me. And all these other cool movies and all these things can allude to it, and our souls say, yeah, but this is where it comes from. So let's look at Exodus chapter 14 through the lens of this is what Jesus has done for me. It's not just an interesting story, but this is what Jesus, my God, did for me. So Exodus chapter 14, verse one. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharoth between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. So to catch you back up with what happened last week is God led the Israelites out of Egypt, but they're not in their promised land yet. And instead of going the straight path through the land and risk fighting other people, instead, God says, okay, I'm going to lead you this direction, and you're going to go into a valley-type area that opens up, and there's just sea. It's just seashore. There's no way to escape to the right or to the left. You're kind of funneled in. It looks like they made the wrong turn. And God, the entire time, is directing them where to go. It's a pillar of fire over them at nighttime. And it's a cloud protecting them from the sun and the heat in the daytime. God's presence is with them, leading them where to go. And he tells them, I want you to go in this spot because I know what Pharaoh will do. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. 
the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharoth in front of Baal Zephon. So now you have the most advanced military weaponry coming after this group of slaves. Pharaoh brings all his army, all these chariots to go and fight against a bunch of slaves who have no formal weapons and they've got no training. And if you were to bet on a side right now, you might be inclined to say, oh, Egypt's got this in the bag. But what you can't forget is there's been 10 plagues that Egypt and Israel both witnessed where God demonstrated his power, where God demonstrated that if you draw near to me, you get life. And if you go away from me, you experience disintegration, chaos, death, that I'm the one who gives life. I'm greater than all of your other gods. Egypt just experienced 10 plagues where everything went wrong when they opposed this God. And so if you were there, if you were in the shoes of the Israelites and you saw all these Egyptians coming over the pass and you look cornered and you look like you're stuck, what would you do? There's scholars that say all of the plagues could have conservatively happened in two months, all of them. There's others that say it could have taken up to nine months. You and I, we're in the two-month period of our strange situation where an outside invisible force has changed our life significantly. And I don't think we're likely to forget that soon. So now you have all these Israelites, they see all of these Egyptians, and whether it's two months or nine months, they know who God is. And if you're sitting there, you might be inclined to go, oh, Looks like the Egyptians, they want an 11th plague. Guys, let's get some popcorn. Let's settle in. Here we go, boys. But that's not what happens. Instead, this is what we see. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, which is good, right? When you fear, what should you do? Well, you should cry out to the Lord, but they don't do it thinking that God will deliver them. Instead, verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Is that what happened? Did Moses come out of the wilderness after an encounter with meeting God and come to the Israelites? And the Israelites, dude, leave us alone. We don't want to go out in the wilderness with you. We want to serve the Egyptians. Is that what happened? Exodus chapter four records what happened. And here's what Exodus chapter four says. It's Exodus 4.31 And the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Did they say, hey, leave us alone? No. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. They wanted this. And what you see here is there's people who really should believe. There's people here who have seen God's power demonstrated. They've seen God work in their life, do amazing, incredible things, but they doubt. And they go, God, why'd you lead us out here? 
You've abandoned us. You brought us out here to die. And what you have to notice is these people's salvation, and lucky for them and lucky for us, our salvation, it's not dependent on our own faithfulness. It's dependent on God's faithfulness towards us. And I think the big problem here is we really want life to be fair. We kind of train ourselves to think that life will be fair. We train our kids that if they do good things, they'll be rewarded. We train our kids that if they study in school, they'll get good grades. And at their job, if they perform well, they'll get raises and they'll get advances in their career. If you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. And we take that attitude, we take that idea into our relationship with God. And we think, well, if I pray and if I worship and if I believe and if I do all of these things, then I'm going to be exempt from hardship and difficulty and pain and suffering and sickness. And it's just not true. And when people forget the brokenness of this world, when they forget that life is not fair, we come to a spot that's very natural to be in where we go, well, God's abandoned me. This isn't good. We serve a good God, so God must not be here. God's not with me. Even though if the Israelites would ever bother to look up, they would see the presence of God literally with them. When we get taken into hard places, it's very natural for us to go, well, God must have left me. God's not with me in this. And what happens is, when we're people who do that, we risk missing out on the great plan that God is actively working. That God led the Israelites to this place so that they would truly know who their God is and he would, they would see him deliver them in a way that can't be taken back. He would be able to deliver them in a way that they would tell generation after generation, oh my God is so good. Don't miss out on that in hard times. Don't become the panicky person that goes, God has left me, God has abandoned me. Instead, this is an opportunity where you can really see how God is gonna move in your life and deliver you. It's easy to believe when things are going well. It's easy to believe that when everything's going good, oh yeah, man, it's so, my God is so good. It's easy when your job is providing for you to trust in God. But when your job's not providing for you and you have to trust that God will provide for you, it's really hard to believe. It's really easy to trust when things are going well, but you and I aren't called to trust only when things are going well. We're called to tr trust God, even in the midst of hard things, because that's when God is doing something really incredible. So look at here, what, what they say next. They say, for it would, have been, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're certain God has abandoned them. God's left them to die. But here's what Moses says to them in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Every other religion, every other God, every other system says, if you want to escape death and reach life, reach eternal life, reach God, you have to build a bridge and get on the other side. You have to cross this sea on your own to escape death. You have to abandon all worldly thought, all worldly pleasure. You have to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things in your life. 
You have to try to fix yourself morally. You have to try to do enough things in your community. You need to do all of these things to build a bridge to get to the other side. But Christianity alone says in regards to your salvation, what saves you is you be quiet, you be silent, and you let God work. In Christianity, if you try to add to your salvation and say, oh, this is what saves me, it actually subtracts. It takes away from you. Christianity alone says that salvation is brought by the Lord, and we trust in him, and we look to him for salvation and deliverance. Here's what happens next. 15, Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. So imagine this for a moment. You're an Egyptian, and the last few months of your life have been horrid, been real bad. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. And the firstborn of every household in Israel has died. And then the slave people left, and a mysterious cloud of fire and of shade follows them everywhere they go. And now you're following them to either bring them back, kill them, or both. And now you get there, and you see all these slaves. And that cloud moves from before them and divides you from them. You can't get to them anymore. It's blocking you. And it's a cloud of fire and darkness. And I don't know what that looks like, but I feel like I know enough to where if I'm an Egyptian, I would look at that and go, you know, I should go home. This, this isn't fun anymore. This is a bad idea. I'm looking now at this fiery thing and going, yeah, you know, I, I don't have a servant anymore. I may have left my oven on. I need to go home and check on the stove to make sure that my house doesn't burn down. I don't want to stay here and burn up. I would do whatever I could to get out of there, but that's not what the Egyptians do. Up until right now, they still have a chance to leave. They still have a chance to go, you know what? This was a bad idea. Let's just go. But the Egyptians stay determined to pursue the Israelites. It's craziness. In verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. So this huge area of the sea that normally is not dry ever God splits it in half to where there's a wall of water on their right, a wall of water on their left, and all night is a really long time. I've got a four-year-old daughter who's determined to get into my bed and kick me in the kidneys all night long. And she'll wait till 2 a.m., right when I'm out of energy to go and fix it. And all night is a long time for you to think and process what has gone wrong in my life. And so these Egyptians, all night now, they see this big parting of the sea. 
and this fire in front of them. All night is a long time to think, yeah, we should go home. And they don't. And what's interesting is the ground is dry. The Israelites get clear, easy passage through. They don't have to climb. They don't have to work. They don't have to do anything but lead their people through, trust in God, and walk through it. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and of cloud looked down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So the Egyptians are pursuing the Israelites down this valley with walls of water on either side. And then they look up and they see God looking at them in a not happy way. And then they panic, rightfully so. And then whatever happened with the ground where it was dry for the Israelites, it's now mucky and it's clogging up their wheels and they are stuck. It's too late for them. They're at the point of no return. And then verse 26, then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The water returned and covered the chariots and all the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant serpent, servant, Moses. It's a crazy story, right? Where God does something no one expected. There's certain death on this side. God provides a way for them to all get out and get life. And God does all of the work. And as we look at this story, there's a few things that stand out to me. There's a few points when we look at and we say, man, if this is talking about my salvation, What does it show me? And here's what I see, that God saves people who absolutely do not deserve it. See, you have the moment with the Israelites where they go, God, you brought us out here to die. God, you've abandoned us. You must not really love me. You must not really care about me. And this will happen even after this moment. In a few chapters from now, the Israelites will think back to their old ways and go, man, I miss that. I miss getting to hang out with the Egyptians and all the food they gave me, just delusional thinking. God saves people who absolutely do not deserve him. And this isn't just exclusive to the Israelites. It even goes to the people that knew Jesus personally and hung out with him every single day for years as he was doing miracles that only God could do. As Jesus was healing the blind, as Jesus was causing people who were paralyzed since birth to walk and to experience life, As Jesus was doing things no one else can do, 
Jesus told his friends, all of you are going to abandon me and all of you are going to betray me. And his best friend, Peter, says, not I, Lord. God, I'll never leave you. I'll never abandon you. And Jesus says, yeah, you will. In fact, when I need you the most, you're going to deny that you know me three times. And Jesus is right. And Peter, when Jesus is being questioned on his way to be executed, he gets asked by different groups of people over and over again, hey, aren't you one of Jesus's friends? Hey, weren't you hanging out with Jesus? I thought you were one of his crew. And Luke chapter 22, 60 records for us that interaction where Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that guy, Jesus. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. In both of these cases, the people are in view of God. The Israelites could look up at any time and see, oh, there's God. Remember all the good things he's done. Remember how he's demonstrated his power and his love for us, his affection for me and my family. But when hardship comes and tribulation strikes, man, both people go, I don't know that guy. I'm not sure if he really cares about me. I'm not sure if he really loves me. No, I I don't know him. And there's an interesting thing that happens in the interaction with Peter and Jesus, where when Peter denies him the last time, he's close enough to Jesus to look at him and their eyes meet. And that's always spoke to me. Because in that, I see Jesus looking back at Peter, and it's not condemning, because that's not Jesus. And it's not, I told you so. Instead, I think in that look, Peter knew, man, Jesus would never deny me. Jesus would never forsake me. Jesus doesn't have to go through this at all. And he's choosing to do it for me. So that's the first big thing I see is I see Jesus, the Lord, saves people who absolutely do not deserve it. And you might say, well, you got to have a lot of faith though, right? Like God saves really faithful people. Well, I don't know. I mean, if I'm there as an Israelite, there might be a group of people like Moses who really trust in the Lord that when the Red Sea is parted, they're able to walk through going, wow. And maybe, I don't know, I wasn't there clearly. Maybe the water is smooth and it's kind of like walking in SeaWorld where you get the dome and you get to see all the sharks around you. Maybe they're walking through with their kids going, oh, look at there's a whale. Oh, that's some jellyfish. Oh, look at that. There's a turtle. And they're walking through just stoked. But I think there's more than likely a large group of people walking between these two giant walls of water, something they've never experienced before, going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm really going to die now. Man, I thought God wanted the Egyptians to kill me. Now he wants to smash me with water. What I see is God loves to save people who do not deserve it, whose faith may not be entirely strong because it's not your quality of faith that saves you. That's how I want to say it. It's not your quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that you say, I'm going to follow God. Even though this is scary and even though this is hard, I'm going to follow God. And when you choose to be a Moses type person, you walk through going, wow, I think you get the fullness of what God is doing. And when you're a panicked person, I think you miss out. There is reward for being faithful and going, yes, Jesus, this is going to be incredible. But it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's not the quality of your faith that excludes you. It's the one you put your faith in. And this is the final 
thought that I have. The one verse really stuck out to me more than anything else. This is the ultimate thing that you need to see, and it's verses 13 through 14 of this chapter. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses did the right thing, didn't he? He stood before all Israel. All these people were complaining, saying, God has abandoned me. God has left me. God doesn't love me. God brought us out here to die. And he goes, no, watch. God's going to work something that you've never seen before. God's got a great deliverance for you. You need to only be quiet and trust in him. But God, in the next verse, verse verse 15, Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Moses gets blamed for all of their sin. Moses gets blamed for all of their faithlessness, all of their whining and complaining, all of their doubt. Moses gets blamed for it. Moses is so identified with the Israelites that he takes all of their blame. And he's so identified with God that God demonstrates all of his power through Moses. He's a man who's in the middle. He's in between the men and he's in between God. He's fully man, but God demonstrates his power through him. But you and I know an even greater mediator, an even greater man in the middle. And he's not fully man who's really close to God. He's fully man and he's fully God. He's the perfect one who came into this world who didn't have to who loved this world so much that he gave his own life for you and for me so we could cross over from death into life. And if you were to ask an Israelite who was brought onto the other side, who are you? This is what they would say. They'd say, I was a slave in a foreign land and I was condemned to death, but God made a way through for me. And now I'm on my way to a promised land, and I'm not there yet, but that promised land, I have it as an inheritance where I'll get to rule and reign in it as a king or a queen, and I'll get to live there with my God and worship him face to face. And right now, we're on this journey from here to there where I get to know my God and draw closer to him every single day and trust in him. And man, that sounds a whole lot what it's like to be a Christian, doesn't it? This story is supposed to show you and me, it's the most physical representation of what our salvation looks like, that because of Jesus's work, we can cross over and trust in him. And so here's the thing, if I can encourage you at all for this week, in light of this story, that in moments of confusion that seem like certain death, that seem like everything is going wrong and falling apart, remember that God is working and that he's in view. God is never far enough away from you that he can't see what's going on in your life. That God is with you. He's present. He'll never abandon you. He'll never forsake you. He's working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God hasn't abandoned you. Know that God does not wait for you to be right. He doesn't wait for you to be moral. He doesn't wait for you to be good or faithful to save you. 
Instead, God saves you so that you can become who he needs you to be. Notice that God didn't pull the, the Israelites out of Egypt and then gave them the law and said, if you obey, I'll save you. Instead, God pulled the Israelites out of Egypt, saved them, and then gave them the law and said, now that you're saved, this is who I want you to be. Come and follow me. Come and live with me. Come and love one another and worship me alone. So guys, as you go through this week, as things fall apart, as you feel in your heart where you start to wonder, why did God bring me here? Did God bring me here just to die? Is God going to abandon me? Remember this story. Remember what the Israelites did. Remember what God did in their lives to demonstrate his love and his power for them. And most of all, whenever we doubt and we worry and we freak out and we fail, remember that your salvation is through the blood of Jesus alone, that his blood cleanses you from all unrighteousness, all your sin, every glitch that makes it so you don't fit in this world anymore. Jesus cleanses you of it, and he's made a way out of it for you. So Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're a God who doesn't abandon us in hard things, that you're a God who will never leave or forsake us, that you are a God who knows our brokenness, knows our hurting, knows our pain, and that you love us through it and despite it, and that you've made a way for us to come out of death and into life through your work on the cross. So Jesus, may we trust in you this week. May we draw close to you this week. May we praise you as we get to see you move in our lives when everything else is falling apart. It's in your name we pray, the name of mighty King Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week.